Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad you're here. Today, we have nine questions that we're going to get through. And if you're new to this community, welcome. Um, I ask questions on Sundays over on the community tab of my podcast YouTube channel, meaning go to youtube.com forward slash opinions that don't matter. That's the name of the podcast I have with my husband, Sean. Anyways, on that community tab on Sunday afternoons, I ask for your questions. And I've moved the time around for when I'm asking those questions so that it can fit better for people, you know, who have different schedules or live in different parts of the world. And that will hopefully give you all an opportunity to get your questions answered. And like I said, we have nine. And the last uh, question today is just a random selection. I do that for every podcast. I randomly select the last one so that it gives you even more of an opportunity to get your question answered, even if it doesn't get a ton of thumbs ups. Without further ado, let's jump into question number one. Question number one says, Hi, Katie, I've noticed a pattern in my life since early childhood where I become emotionally attached in a non-romantic way to certain people and I subconsciously place them in a parental role. I feel dependent on them emotionally and want to feel validated by them, but I'm also kind of intimidated by them. So I tend to avoid interacting with them because of the anxiety that it causes. These feelings are so uncomfortable and annoying, and I make a huge effort every day to ignore them and never act on them, but it's always there and can be very distressing. After researching this, I discovered the term favorite person, and I learned that it's a common experience among those struggling with BPD, but I don't seem to fit that diagnosis. Can this experience occur in disorders other than BPD? What would you do or think if a client told you about their experience of having a favorite person? Thank you for your thoughts. Of course, and for anybody who doesn't know, I've talked a lot over the years about borderline personality disorder, otherwise known as BPD, and the urge or impulse we can have to do what's called splitting, meaning that we believe people uh, can be all good or all bad. And due to our very intense fear of abandonment and impulsivity, when someone does something that we find hurtful or harmful, let's say someone cancels on us last minute or isn't available when we need them, that can be seen as a potential for abandonment or it can threaten our own feeling of security. And in order to protect ourselves, we cut them off, like throw them under the bus, meaning they were all good and now they're all bad. Now, when someone is seen as good in our eyes and we want to spend all our time with them and we look to them for a lot of reassurance and support, almost in a way that's, I mean, not almost, it is unhealthy. A favorite person thing is actually a very unhealthy attachment because again, if we have borderline personality disorder, that usually stems from, you know, childhood attachment issues and that intense fear of abandonment. And when someone is all good in our eyes and we want to see them a lot and we love them and we want to spend time with them, we want their reassurance. A lot of people have deemed that the favorite person. Now, in my experience with people who have BPD, the favorite person can be a lot of different people. A therapist often plays that role without realizing it, um, but it can be anybody from a friend, a colleague, a parental figure, a boss, someone that they see as you know caring for them and important to them. And again, they think they can do no wrong and they want to spend all their time with them and look to them for all the validation in the world. And this 
isn't just something that happens only with those with BPD. This happens, this could happen with anybody who struggles with attachment issues. And attachment in and of itself isn't enough to diagnose BPD, right? BPD is much more than that. But anyone who maybe grew up in a an abusive or neglectful household could struggle with attachment and therefore be looking for a person to like fill that void that was left by our caregivers. Meaning if our mother or father was physically or sexually abusive or neglectful and abuse by not being there, right? We can look to other people to to fill the void we wish they had. And in that urge to have them fill that void, that's when we create that favorite person type of experience. It's very common. It's nothing to be ashamed of. I know for a lot of you, and especially, you know, in the comments below this and just the chatter I've seen online about this in the past, people think, you know, it's embarrassing. They hate that they do it. It feels really impulsive. It feels kind of out of control. I just want you to know that it is, it's a normal experience. And it's one that we need to communicate with our therapist because, What that would tell me is that we're dealing with some of this attachment stuff and that might shift the types of tools or techniques that I would offer you or maybe even, you know, finding a different therapist with a different style or it could mean that instead of going down this road that we've been on towards this one goal, we're going to shift and we're going to move toward that. So I think it's important to let your therapist know I wouldn't have any thoughts about it, any anything other than, oh, interesting. Okay. So there must be some attachment issues there that we might want to work on, or I might want to dig into it more with you about like, where do we think this comes from? And how was your upbringing? And because maybe we haven't talked about that yet. Right. And so long story short, I would want to figure out where we think this is coming from. Know that it does not mean you have BPD, favorite person type of activity and that kind of those kinds of actions don't only occur in BPD, but they use that term specifically in relation to BPD, that favorite person term. So that might be kind of, you know, what we're seeing and feeling a little bit more. Um, but anyways, those are really my thoughts. That would be how I might shift our work together to cater it to the fact that attachment issues are clearly there. Now, there was a comment on top of this that said, Great question. I can really relate to this too. Although for me, it's not always in a parental way. I was wondering if you could also be ADHD. Oh, if it could also be ADHD related as some sort of hyperfixation. Ever since I was a little kid, I've had people on and off who have sort of, I've sort of idolized and become extremely attached to. I would want to learn as much as I can about them and even take on a bunch of their traits, almost as if trying to be more like them. I did this with movie characters, celebrities, and also people in my real life. I was always embarrassed when it was real people in my life, though, because I didn't want them to think it was creepy or that I was obsessed with them. But I really looked up to them and thought about them all the time and would sort of have these pretend conversations or non-romantic relationships with them in my head. I still do this, just not quite as extreme as I used to. Why could this be? Now, hyperfixation in ADHD is a little different than that. I'm not saying that this couldn't be part of it because everyone experiences their symptoms differently. But when I look at the symptomology of ADHD, I do not see it relate relating to this kind of attachment urge i may i know that bpd and adhd can in some ways look like one another and misdiagnosis can happen and that's why it's really important that we see a clinician meaning a therapist psychiatrist psychologist for a longer period of time to ensure we get properly diagnosed maybe even getting a second opinion um because there's a lot of opportunities for misdiagnosis but they're, they're different because obviously like BPD doesn't have any of the uh, difficulty, uh, like the concentration or the hyperactivity. There might be impulsivity, right? You can see how they kind of run parallel, but they're not the same. ADHD and BPD are actually quite different. Now, I don't believe that what's happening to you is this favorite person type of response, but you would know best. But I am curious, because this would be your answer, if we have any history of attachment issues, if we have any history of abuse or maybe feeling neglected, maybe we were a parentified child, which is really just another way of saying that we were neglected as a child. Um, I would I would want to dig into that and look into that. Now, in my experience, obviously, I do not specialize in ADHD. So there's probably tons and tons of things that I don't fully understand because I don't practice it all the time. But when it comes to the hyperfixation, it is about wanting to learn about something and know everything about it. And it's kind of like we find it so interesting that it works with our ADHD brain and we get that dopamine hit from it, right? And we feel so much better when we're focused on something that is interesting and exciting and new. 
So that's kind of more of the hyperfixation. I would, if we're going to try to tie it to this, I'd be curious if we get bored of them quickly and then we lose that focus or, you know, why that I don't think I'm sure already you can probably feel maybe for you like, yeah, yeah, I do get bored. And then I move on to another one. If that's the case, then it could be related to your ADHD. But in my experience, that's not the case. Hyperfixation usually is on like a subject matter or a thing, not a person and wanting to become them. Um, What you're experiencing sounds more to me like something related to attachment. Um, And it might even be due to neglect in our childhood because and I'm leaning towards the neglect because of the fact that you, you know, kind of look up to them and want to be like them. Part of me feels like maybe you didn't feel safe and secure to get to know who you were. You were too busy, like surviving on your own. And obviously I come from a ton of different types of abuse, but long story short, I have a lot of questions about this because I do not think it is just ADHD related. Could be part of it, but it doesn't really sound like it to me. And I'm more interested in past, you know, your upbringing, um, whether there was abuse or neglect of some form happening. And, you know, since this has been going on, because you said it's, it's extremely attached to, so I really would lean more into that attachment-based work. And I would let your therapist know that this is happening. I know we can be embarrassed and we can think that something's wrong with us or we're weird for doing this. But when I tell you attachment issues are incredibly common, they're incredibly common. I would guesstimate, haven't done a study, but I would guess that like 75% of people have some kind of attachment issue whether the attachment is that they need attention um, or they don't want to rock the boat, so they got to be a perfectionist. Maybe the attachment is always needing to be in a romantic relationship, struggle to be alone. Maybe it's that they always need to be alone because they feel unsteady when they're in relationships. Everybody's got something. And so I want you to be kind of curious about it, not judgmental, digging into where you think this comes from when it started. Talk with your therapist about it. Maybe, you know, focus in on your childhood in ways that you were neglected or abused or something parentified in some way. Um, because I think that that's probably where this is coming from. Um, not so much that ADHD. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. And this question says, Hey Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says I have a question about bipolar disorder and therapy in general. I take Lamictal daily. I was diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder last year and I go to therapy every two weeks. Whenever I go to see my therapist, I feel as though she exaggerates my experiences and labels them as episodes when I feel like I'm just going through the normal tugs of life. I feel like I can't share the bad things that happen in my week without her assuming that it triggered a depressive episode or that it uh, is always related to me having bipolar. Hmm. Like she manufactures how I'm feeling for me in an artificial way to employ the narrative that I have bipolar disorder. And everything I do is bipolar-like. After every session, my therapist leaves notes attached to my medical account because I have to go to therapy through my local hospital's health insurance so that my mom can see what we discuss. It's crazy she has to do that every time. But okay. I read those notes and summaries of our session and notice how she takes my words out of context to paint a picture of something that I didn't actually experience. For example, last week I told my therapist I didn't use the restroom for hours despite having to go because I was socially anxious about the group, the people grouped outside of my door in my residence hall. My therapist in the notes described this as depressive symptoms just because I didn't want to use the restroom when I really had to go. I didn't think that bipolar disorder had a correlation to social stress. So I'm just really confused. But this happens frequently. And it's really frustrating because I feel like she uses my disorder as a mode of explanation for all of my behavior, even though I feel like my disorder doesn't have to do with a lot of what happens in my life. She's starting to make me feel chained to my disorder as if every single thing that I do is a result of me having bipolar disorder. What should I do? And am I just confused about the effects of bipolar too? This is a great question. And my first knee-jerk therapist reaction is please tell your therapist because what they're doing is really harmful and not helpful at all. And I'm so sorry that she's doing this. Now, I do know, and I'm just going to, I don't know her perspective, so I'm just going to give you some insights into what might cause someone to act in this way, meaning a therapist, okay? I've had patients over and over and over, year after year after year, who struggle to accept a diagnosis, meaning that they can think that they're making up their bipolar disorder or that it's not actually as bad as maybe they thought or as bad as their therapist, psychiatrist, psychologist told them. 
all sorts of things. We can want to minimize or invalidate ourselves, or it can also be really difficult for us to admit that that's what we're struggling with, right? Or to give it a name. It can feel overwhelming. We cannot want to um, accept a diagnosis for many, many reasons, okay? When that happens, because like I said, it happens. It's happened over and over and over to me, year after year, patient after patient. I talk with them about their reasons behind not wanting to accept it. I walk them through the symptoms that I have seen or they have told me about. We go through the diagnostic criteria and I essentially encourage them to state their case while I state my case and we have a conversation about it, hopefully coming to an agreement, either that the diagnosis is correct or incorrect. Now, if you were pushing back against that diagnosis as a therapist, if I really thought you had it, I still wouldn't go about it this way, but I would try to highlight some of the symptoms. Again, stating my case and why I think this is what you have. That might be why I'd push to to explain current experiences and symptoms as like referencing them as bipolar disorder symptoms. Does that make sense? So that's something that I might do to try to help you see how it's affecting your life. However, this feels way, way more than that. And I don't know if you've told your therapist that they're doing this and that it bothers you, but you need to share this with them. You need to tell them because they might think that it's helpful, that they're putting it in the context of your disorder, that you're like, that's not part of it. Like I know my ups and downs. I know a depressive episode. My social anxiety is not a depressive episode and nothing happens in a vacuum. I have tons of bipolar patients with other diagnoses on top of it. Things like social anxiety, eating disorder, self-injury, right? Or non-suicidal self-injury. There can be a lot of different disorders or different diagnoses or even just different symptoms that don't meet the criteria that we can struggle with. It's not all bipolar. And I would be frustrated as well. Also, the fact that you're taking Lamictal, I'd be curious like how you think that affects your mood and do you feel more, you know, stable and less highs and lows, I would hope that it's helpful that way. And if not, if we do feel ourselves you know, going up and down, I want you to tell your therapist or, and psychiatrist that so that we can p- potentially change your medication or put you on something different so that you do get you know, most resolu- the most resolution of your symptoms that you can get. And yeah, overall, very invalidating. I don't like the fact that you think the notes aren't correct and you feel like she's like interpreting your experience and making it sound like it's something that's not. So it's like, not factual. Um, we just need to talk to her about it. And if, if it doesn't change, if we talk to her about it and it doesn't change, then I think you need to see someone else because to feel this misunderstood and invalidated can actually do more harm than good. It can mean that therapy is not really helping you and it could potentially make you worse. And this is what I would say to your therapist. I would say something to the effect of, you know, the other week when I mentioned, you know, not wanting to go to the bathroom at school because of the crowd that was outside of my residential hall. Um, And so I put it off for a few hours. To me, that felt like anxiety. But then you described it as a depressive symptom or a depressive episode. And I don't really understand. Sometimes I feel like maybe I'm not communicating clearly or you're not understanding me. I know that might be hard. Practice saying it. Think about it. There are different ways you could say it that might feel more true to you or or less abrasive if that feels too abrasive. But we're going to have to communicate the fact that we feel like she's manufacturing, you know, events or situations or feelings that you didn't have. And we want to make sure that we're on the same page. And so we're going to have to bring that up. And once we bring that up, then hopefully it opens the door for a conversation where we say, you know, sometimes I feel like you're creating situations or feelings that I didn't have. And it feels kind of not, I feel misunderstood sometimes. I know it's hard, but it's good practice for life. We have to speak up for ourselves. We have to let them know when something's not right and it doesn't, because this is not just the effects of bipolar two. Like what you're talking about and that difficulty leaving because of the people outside, to me, that's social anxiety. That doesn't sound like a depressive episode to me. Um, Could it be? Maybe, but I wouldn't just call it that. I would talk to you about it and ask questions and we would kind of be detectives together to figure it out. Like, where is it coming from? 
And then as far as a hypomania component, which it doesn't sound like she's referenced that very much with you, but if you, you know, feel like you don't need as much sleep and you feel extra excited or happy or even irritable, um, you know, I, I would want to dig into that and figure out what's triggering those and what, what that's, where that's coming from and, and acknowledging that and trying to identify it earlier on. Um, and she might be wanting to identify the depressive symptoms more earlier on so that we don't wait till we're really in the depths of it, but that's not the right way to go about it. So I'd bring it up, talk to her because that's not how therapy should feel. Therapy should feel heard and understood. And even though we'll probably still feel shame and embarrassment when we share certain things, we sh- it should feel a little less than it does out in the real world. Therapy is supposed to be a safe holding environment where you can dump all of your stuff and you can be okay. And you, you're looking at another human and they're saying it's going to be okay, right? That's what it's supposed to feel like, not this. So speak up and then keep us posted, Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, how do you know if it's attachment to your therapist, if it's attachment to your therapist, or if it's something more? I've noticed that the fear, that I fear the day I won't be in therapy, but I don't know, I don't know that it's so much that I'm attached to my therapist and don't want to leave her company. Gotcha. So is it the therapy part or is it attachment to the therapist? It seems more like a fear of actually letting go of the trauma. It has been my way of life. That hypervigilant feels like a protection. Why is it so scary to let that go? Because you feel vulnerable. That's why. That idea of living life not on edge almost seems worse than constantly being on edge because that's all we know. There's also a part of me that thinks if and when the time comes that the tra- that the charge of the past is gone, that it almost invalidates what happened. Okay, we'll talk about that. That someone will go, oh, well, you aren't bothered by it. So what's the big deal? that they won't believe you because you're no longer traumatized by it. Like it's a small thing and not important. Not sure if any of that makes any sense. Yes, it makes complete sense. And we'll walk through this because there's a lot to unpack here. Now, the first component, the attachment to your therapist, only you are going to be able to tease that out. So when you think that stopping therapy seems like too much, it's overwhelming, it's scary. Is it because you won't see them anymore? Or is it because you won't have a safe place to talk about all you've been through? Or is it both? That's fair too. There's nothing wrong with wanting to stay in therapy. Like I've talked about before, it's not ideal for us to stay in it forever and ever, but if it's something that we find benefit from and we still find ourselves growing and it's like a supportive place, sure, there's nothing wrong with it. I just always am concerned about people becoming dependent upon therapy and not feeling like they can do things on their own. And the whole goal of therapy is to help you learn that you can do it on your own and empower you to take those steps. So You'd have to tease that out. The attachment to your therapist would be the fear that that she wouldn't be in your life anymore and that you won't see her as often. And that, like you said, like, um, don't want to leave her company. Like, if you don't want to be away from her, then it has more to do with her and less to do with the therapy. If you're like, I don't know who I'll talk to. Where will I go to vent about things? That's more therapy-based. Do you see the difference? So think about that. And only you are going to know the answer to that question. But more what I want to dig into is the fear of moving past the trauma. And I hear about this all the time. And I'm just going to give you my thoughts about it because I don't, everybody's going to be different. These are just my thoughts. Now, it's scary for us to let go of the trauma because to the person's point that asked this question, then you can feel like, well, what's the big deal? It's not bothering you anymore. And it's that invalidation, the moving past or through the uncomfortable experience that PTSD is can feel validating in some ways and protective. Now, it can also be just comfortable and we don't really know another way of being. And like the person who asked this question said, you know, be, not being hypervigilance or hypervigilant feels dangerous and invalidating. And of course it feels dangerous. If we've been hypervigilant our whole lives and bad things have still happened, we're like, oh my God, if I let my guard down, I don't even know what's going to take place. I can't handle it. And not being on edge makes us feel vulnerable to more pain and upset. And all that tells me is that we're not to that point yet. We're not ready to let that hypervigilance go because it still feels like a necessity. And the only way to make that go away is to get us to a point where the physical symptoms, the psychological symptoms of our trauma have been processed through and they don't affect us all the time. Because if we aren't, if we don't feel like our environment is threatening to us anymore because we're resilient and we don't feel so on edge because we don't feel like we need to be, right? You still feel like you need to be and that's okay. That's where you're at. 
But there will come a time and a place when you look around your environment and you realize that it's not as threatening as you thought. And you feel better able to weather life's storms. When we have PTSD, we often are so burnt out from the hypervigilance that we don't have any resilience and any little threat could push us over the edge and it just feels too scary and too overwhelming to even open ourselves up to the potential that it could happen. Does that make sense? So hypervigilance feels safe and that's why we do it. It's protective and we won't, we shouldn't try to get rid of that or heal. Like we can heal from that, but we shouldn't just try to remove that hypervigilance when we're not ready because it serves a purpose. Okay. Now to the invalidation of the trauma, to me, again, it goes to where you are in the process. While we work our way through trauma and healing, we need a shitload of validation and understanding. Someone saying, yes, I can't, I, I'm so sorry that happened. That must have been terrible. We need someone to acknowledge along with us that what happened was bad and shitty and scary and terrifying. And we need it over and over because often when those things happen, the people in our lives who've done those things to us were ones that were supposed to care for us. So we're like, wait, what is something wrong with me? Why did this happen? And, and no, I'm making it into a bigger deal than it is, right? We invalidate, we shame and blame ourselves for years. And so when we finally admit, hey, that was fucked up, then it can be really hard for us to, to even consider going back to that minimization space. Does that make sense? It's like we've moved out of that and we just need constant support and validation as we navigate these waters. Again, as we process through our traumas and we move through the other side, meaning we've talked about it, we've maybe done some EMDR or schema or somatic, we've moved through through our body, we've gotten the energy out, we've allowed ourselves to experience what happened, to feel it, to identify the feelings and to validate them and move to the other side. At that point, we won't need outside validation as much about what happened because we already know we've already processed it through and honestly to in my experience you guys let me know in the comments if what your experience has been but in my experience my patients almost feel like not that they're sick of talking about it that might not be the right term but kind of they're like i've already worked on that i don't even want to talk about it anymore it's almost like i could uh, compare it to when my dad passed away, really, really, really hard for me to talk about. And I couldn't for a while and I would just cry. And then I got to a point where I was like mad about it and then sad about it. And then slowly but surely I moved through it and felt like, because even today, if someone says something about like, oh, are your parents coming? I'd be like, oh yeah, my mom, but my dad passed away when I was 24 or whatever. And people always inevitably, and you know, rightfully so, I would have the same reaction say, oh my God, I'm so sorry for your loss. And to which I say, oh, I mean, it was hard at the time, but I'm fine now. And that's the truth. And that's the same thing that happens with trauma. Yeah, that was shitty and it was bad, but I'm okay now. And I want you to know that the normal human reaction when anybody talks about anything that was traumatizing, terrifying, uh, hurtful, painful, people say, oh my God, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. That must have been so hard. To which you can say, yeah, it was, but thank God I've moved through it. It doesn't really affect me like it used to. And that will be the truth. And so overall throughout this whole question, which is a beautiful question, by the way, and really important that we talk about it, is that all that you're feeling right now is very important and valid. And it just goes to show where you are in the process. You don't have to let go of the hypervigilance right now. Is it a goal? You betcha. But it's not where we're at right now. And that's okay. Do we need to be okay with not being validated or not feeling like, uh, you know, almost like we need to have the symptoms in order to be feeling pain. Like we need to, it's almost like you have to prove the pain is what you're feeling right now. That's okay. You don't have to let that go yet either. It's just important to acknowledge it. I'm, I'm proud of you for noticing that this is happening and this is what's coming up for you and just recognizing that you're not ready. Trauma processing is a process. It sucks. It's hard. It, it challenges who we think we are and what we can do. And, you know, but it's okay, right? We're moving through it little by little. One step at a time might be one step forward, five steps back, but we're getting there. We're making a move. We're doing things. And just believe me when I tell you that it can and will get better. We're just not ready to let those things go yet. And that's okay. It's part of the process. Okay. 
honestly, the fact that you're even noticing this is like leaps and bounds of progress. Like I'm really proud of you. That's it's, I can't tell you how many of my patients, it takes them forever to even acknowledge that that's what's coming up. So you'll get there. Let's move on to question number four. And this question says, Hey Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well. I want to follow up on a question that I asked recently because I don't think you quite covered what I meant and there has been a lot of discussion in the comments about it. Thanks for asking again. My question was about the phrase, you can't make someone feel something. Mm -hmm. I understand your response, but it was very focused on the actions people take versus the cause of feelings, which is the part that I was wondering about. I understand that you can't control how people act. You can't make them say sorry, stop abusing you, etc. And that we are responsible for our own actions, like setting boundaries and how we respond, etc. Yes, correct. But I'm just asking about how a person feels, not acts. In the phrase, you can't make someone feel something. What if we were to change the word make to cause? Either works for me. If someone is being abusive or mean, are they not the cause of someone feeling hurt? We'll get into this. Therefore, making them feel hurt? I'm not saying people have the power to hand select the emotions. That's the key. Yes, you could say that someone, it's like our actions do have results or ripple effects or, you know, there's, there's like, there's going to be when we take action or behavior, when we do something, it affects people around us. Now, the the level with which it affects people is going to be different depending on their resilience and support, which is like support system, but even like how how they interpret the world around them. For example, let's say someone cuts me off in traffic and I'm having like the worst day. I didn't sleep well. I haven't eaten breakfast. I haven't even had my coffee. I'm just barely hanging on, right? I might lose my shit, honk my horn. It might ruin the next like four or five hours of my day where I'm like, that son of a bitch. And it really gets me down and it affects me for a long period of time. Now, the same exact situation could have happened if I had slept really well, had a really good conversation with a girlfriend, had eaten breakfast and I was drinking my coffee. And then this person did that. I might be like, oh my God, what are they doing? Jeez Louise. And then I move on with my day. That's really what I'm talking about. The same person is doing the same thing. And sure, it has ripple effects, but each person is going to be going to experience that situation or that effect differently. Hence, you can't make or cause someone to feel a certain thing. They're going to experience what they experience through their own lens and their own like life, if that makes sense. But let's keep going. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not saying people have the power to hand select the emotions they want to place on others. But if someone says or does something that will inevitably stir up some sort of emotion, whether positive or negative, they are still the cause of that change of emotion, right? To be honest, even if we didn't swap out the words, I'm still confused because we say things like medicine makes you feel better or thank you for the gift. It made me feel special all the time. People use that term a lot. It's just honestly, just like a common phrase. It's not really true in the make. Like it's just a term we use, but it's not really correct. Okay. It's just almost like casual conversation because in the context of therapy, words are a little bit more important and will be more hand selected by a therapist versus in regular, you know, casual conversation. We'll use terms that you wouldn't use in therapy as a therapist, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, so why is the use of that word correct in some situations, but not others? I hope this clarification makes sense. It's hard to find the right wording, but I guess I'm just wondering if others can be the cause of our emotions making us feel without talking about the actions or behaviors that follow, because I understand that that is part of our responsibility. Thank you. And I'm sorry for this long and confusing question. I just really want to understand this better since the phrase is frequently used against me when I express feeling hurt by the abuse. So I end up feeling like it's all my fault for feeling this way. It's not your fault for being hurt by something bad happening. I think that maybe the confusion is ha- is occurring. And let me know again, feel free to ask follow-ups as always. Um, I think maybe the struggle is that I'm not saying that you don't have a right to feel the way you feel. You have every right to feel however you feel. 
but someone's actions can't cause us to feel a certain way. Like you said, you can't handpick feelings. Could Does someone's actions start a ripple effect that has the potential to cause us to feel something? Yes, but it might not. Like I said, those examples of like that person cutting me off, I may not even have a reaction at all because I might just be in my own la-di-da land. It just depends on how you catch us and what our resilience is, how we're doing that day in that moment. Um, If that's a trigger or something we've experienced in the past, there's just too many variables. And I think that's why I'm saying that, you know, we're responsible for our behaviors on both sides of every situation. And my emotional response or the feelings that I have about a situation really are really dependent upon me. Now, obviously, the stronger or more abusive or harmful the action, the the less ability I'm going to have to withstand it, right? My resilience is only so much. So they could that still could trigger an emotional response in me. But a lot of it just has to do with my ability to manage it. And that's not meaning that, again, an abusive thing and us feeling hurt, that doesn't mean that that's invalid or not okay, because that is okay. And that's like a normal human response. What I'm saying is like the cause and effect, right? Just someone behaving in a bad way doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to feel some kind of way about it. Does that make sense? Because there's just too many variables in place. I hope that that clears it up. It is kind of complicated, But that's really what I meant. It doesn't mean that feelings aren't valid or anything like that. Everyone has every right to feel how they feel. I'm just saying that just because someone acts in a shitty way does not necessarily mean that everyone who witnessed that shitty action is going to have an emotional response. Does that make sense? But that also doesn't mean that those emotional responses aren't valid. I hope that that is clear. But that's why I say you can't make someone feel a kind of way and you can't cause, you can start a process, but in us reacting to it or responding to it, then it's, you know, it's coming through our own filters, our own choices, and we're responding or reacting in some kind of way. Does that make sense? I hope so. I'm sorry if this just made it more complicated, but I'm going to stop there before I potentially make it more muddied, but I hope that clears it up. Okay. And everybody's responsible for their actions, okay? I'm not saying this to say that the people who do harm aren't shouldn't be held accountable. They should. I'm just saying that in in our every person's individual experience, we could react or respond or feel all sorts of different ways. It's all dependent upon us in that moment, okay? I hope that helps. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, what are some creative ways that we can celebrate our mental health wins? I think this may be an overlooked part of our healing journey. I feel silly expressing them because they aren't always as big as a new job or a degree, et cetera, and can be hard to relate to people. This is why, well, first of all, I have a couple of thoughts. Who says they're not as big as a new job or a degree? Who says? I think they are sometimes even bigger. Sometimes they take longer, more work. And this is why it's important to have group therapy or other friends and supportive people around you who know what it's like. This is why I'm always encouraging people to to join therapeutic groups or to connect with other people like in our community, people who get it. We need those people because we want them to celebrate, you know, us being 10 days self-harm free or us finally graduating from a DBT program or getting out of residential, being weight restored, whatever it is we're struggling with or working on, we need those people to help us celebrate those wins because they get it. And creative ways to celebrate, like, okay, I'll give you some random ideas. So back in my eating disorder treatment days, we had different ceremonies for different things. And one was if a patient, um, because we was a female only, adult female only treatment center. So when someone got their period back, which is a sign of your body healing, um, and that's for my restrictive eating disorder folks, I know this could be, you know, people could see it as very, I don't even know, not judgmental, that's not the word, but 
it's a very specific type of thing, but to each their own. So when someone would get their period back, we had this like ceremony um, with lilies and it was like an event and everybody, um, the person got to write a letter to their body and they'd read it. So that's a cool thing. Um, I used to run this group called the Body and Soul Group. And when people would go a certain amount of days self-harm free or be free of suicidal thoughts for a week or something, I would have them write a letter to future them and read that. I think doing something, if we're able to do something that maybe we couldn't before, like let's say crowds are really terrifying for us, but now we could go to the grocery store or we could go to a concert. It depends on your comfortability. Go to an event, right? The holidays are coming up. Let's say we go to a tree lighting ceremony and we celebrate that and we get to write and share about that and go with people who get it and get excited with us. Um, or maybe, you know, we could never go hiking because of whatever kind of reason, right? Whether it's like depression taking away our motivation or eating disorder taking away our functionality or any kind of thing. If we can go do those things, I think those are all creative ways to celebrate. I also have had patients in the past create things like... um. Uh, I've done it with grief before and I've talked about this, but you can do it for many things, but you get like a tiny little wreath and you get a bunch of different colors of ribbon. A lot of times at some uh, different like fabric stores or craft stores, they'll have little bits that they'll give you for free or like a bag of random ribbons for pretty cheap. It's all like the ends that people don't want. They're not long enough for anything, but they're long enough for what we need. And so you have a bunch of different ribbons and strings and stuff. And I want you to think of... um one of the small choices you made that led to this bigger win, say it out loud with the group and tie it on your wreath. And everybody can do this for different things. And then you have like something to hang up in your bedroom or bathroom or office or whatever, where you can see it and you can know what it represents for you. So those are just a couple cool ideas that I have. If anybody has any, feel free to share them in the comments down below. But I think it is definitely overlooked and one that we need to celebrate more. I've done it with my patients over the years. And like I said, I did it at the um, Eating Disorder Treatment Center. Um, I think it's really important that we celebrate those wins because life is filled with a lot of more important wins than getting a new job or a degree. Sure, that can be important, but there's so many other things to life than those things. So I'm proud of you. Hang in there. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hey, Katie, I find it difficult to express my feelings in other ways than through words alone. I don't want to bother anyone by showing that I feel something or actively or acting irrationally and emotionally. I've always been this way, but after trying DBT, it's even harder to feel my feelings. DBT might not be the best for you. Just depends, right? Every therapy is different and different people will, you know, find different things helpful. I had a very bad therapist who invalidated my emotions a lot. Oh, I'm sorry. She constantly invalidated and criticized me. My new therapist wants me to get better at feeling anger. Ooh, mm -hmm. my therapist wanted me to do that two years ago, but I rarely feel angry. Well, not towards others anyway. Interesting. In DBT, anger is a secondary emotion, but are there times when one should be angry as a first reaction? We'll talk about that. Do I need to get angry sometimes? Usually I skip the anger and go straight to the primary emotion. I try to communicate my feelings, not anger, of course, to others and try to be as non-judgmental as possible. Is it wrong? We'll talk about that too. P.S. I journal daily about my emotions, so I don't need advice on that. I have problems putting my feelings into words. And I just don't know how to show them. All emotions are hard to show, but anger is the emotion that I don't even register. How can I get better at showing my feelings? Do I have to feel anger at all? <laughs> Greetings from Sweden. Okay. Now there were some comments below that talked about core emotions, like um, in Inside Out, the film Inside Out, you know, the, the emotions you see, what's it? Joy, disgust, fear, anger, and sadness. I think that's it. There's five, might be more. But anyway, so there's those core emotions that you see. And core emotions are important because really what they are is um, they're emotions that, so they call them core because these emotions are so that we can react to things in our environment faster than like our thinking or our thoughtful brain can actually comprehend. So really these core emotions are set off by what we call our midbrain or our limbic system that houses our fight, flight, freeze response. So these core emotions are like innate, bah, like knee jerk reactions, down. It doesn't really matter if they're secondary or primary, um, but anger tends to be protective. That's why we say it's a secondary emotion. Now, could you say that you just wholeheartedly feel anger? 
Sure. I'd always push back though and, and question that a little bit because even if I think of like situations that would make me angry, like someone talking shit to Sean, my husband, I'm protective. I love him. So I feel hurt for him and protective. And that's why I'm angry. Someone says something rude to me um, and I get angry because I feel disrespected or I feel misunderstood. It's not it's not just the anger. The anger is protective and it's an important emotion to experience. And yes, you do have to feel anger. And the, the funny thing is that you do, and you said it here, you just don't feel it towards others. You feel it towards yourself. I have a feeling, I would argue, um, I don't know if you have a diagnosis of BPD and that's why you were in the DBT therapy stuff, but BPD and depression, anxiety are all anger in. We turn it on ourselves and then we act in self-destructive ways or we don't get out of bed or we, you know, worry, worry, worry that people aren't going to like us or we're going to embarrass ourselves. It's That's all anger in. So yes, you have to feel it. Not you have to, but you are. You're experiencing it. You're just not wanting to acknowledge it. I'd be more curious about your anger and maybe either number one, how was anger, like, was it expressed in your family in a very out of control, crazy way? Or do we feel like anger makes us look bad? Or do we not want to hurt others? We want to set ourselves on fire to keep others warm. Are we like super people pleaser? So anger feels really bad. Or has no one in our life ever expressed anger? So we don't even know what it's like because everybody else just stuffed it down. I don't know. I'd be very curious about what we think about anger. I don't really think I need to focus so much with you right now on how to show your feelings. I want you to dig into kind of your history of them. Like anger is clearly one that's very difficult for you. We, we're we still having a hard time. You're still like, I would, I just can't express it. I don't even know if it exists. Do I have to feel it? Unfortunately, you are and you do. It's every feeling is okay. We, we've some, for some reason, we have some feelings that are quote unquote bad, you know, like we shouldn't feel anger. We shouldn't feel disgust or judgment or whatever. All feelings are okay. It's all about how we process them and communicate them. So you can feel angry, but I'm, again, I'm not so much concerned about you communicating it right now. I would encourage you instead with these, with these emotions, anger is probably one of many that will be tricky for you, which is normal. We all have things that are hard for us to express and feel and communicate. Instead of focusing on that, I want you instead to focus on the back end of it, like the history of that emotion for you. Like for me, for example, because I don't like anger either. Um, even as a young kid, my mom said that when her and my dad would like just have a heated discussion, like, I don't even know, not even anything big, like, let's say like where we were going to go on vacation or if uh, who was going to drive. If one of them was like, no, but I wanted it in like the voice raised just for a minute. I hated it. I'd be like, stop fighting. I was not comfortable with it. Now, if I think about it, I never saw anybody in my family really fight. We were definitely very waspy. Nobody like shouted or or yelled. Um, it was definitely not something that I saw. I didn't know much about it. My friend Jamie's family shouted like crazy and it was really scary for me. So I found that that was my only real experience with like any kind of anger or argument was like out of control, dangerous. To me, it felt very dangerous. And who knows if I went back in time, it could watch again. I don't know if it would be as scary to me now as it was then. But anyways, I'm just sharing that because <clears throat> that was the reason that anger was overwhelming for me and I didn't want to feel it because it felt, on I only knew it as out of control versus the way that I'm hoping we can get you to a place where you see anger as a helpful indication of something happening. Meaning when I feel anger <clears throat> and I want to yell or I want to lash out, that tells me that a boundary has been crossed or something has happened where I feel in some way, like I said, misunderstood or hurt or disrespected or, um, you know, I could even be feeling some, some grief and then angry because that happened to me. Like when I talked about my dad passing away for a long time, I'd be sad and then I'd be angry right away. I'd be like, why did I have to lose? You know, I'd be so mad that that happened to me in my life. So I want you to get to a place where you see your anger as a helpful indicator. 
almost like we're watching, you know, some kind of machine as it tracks things and anger goes boop, boop. And we're like, oh, okay, that's helpful. Okay, now let's dig into that. And so we can see it and we can dig into what triggered that feeling and where is it really coming from? What's the root of our anger? I hope that that helps and makes sense because I think maybe focusing on expressing things right now and feeling it, it's too much. I want, I want instead for you to learn about your history with that mo- emotion. And like I said, this might be the first of many and that's okay too. But be curious, not judgmental about where it comes from for you. And you might be kind of like me where you're like, I don't know, no one in my family expresses it. So it just seems real scary. That might be where it, where you are and that's okay. But we have to know that. We need to understand that. And then it could be more helpful. Then we'll be moving through like, well, okay, what do you think healthy anger looks like? And you're like, I don't think healthy anger looks like anything. I don't think it exists. And then that's interesting, right? That's helpful. Okay, so what does unhealthy anger look like? Well, it's out of control and it looks like this and it's dangerous. Okay, well, imagine if we felt that and then we communicated versus exploding. Could that be better, right? Then we get to be curious and start to build these kind of questions. And I would let your therapist know, just say, showing anger is too much for me right now. I really think I need to spend a little time getting to know it as a whole, because I don't even know how to express it. It feels very foreign, like it doesn't belong to me. And so I want to figure out why that's my experience with it. And let's move through it that way. I know that sounds really maybe crazy or weird, but sometimes trying to express something is too much too fast. And instead, we have to kind of get back into what we know about it. And I know that sounds kind of silly, but we often just take for granted that everybody knows and understands feelings and can express them and knows what that looks like. When most of us don't, most of us did not grow up in families where people expressed how they felt easily and readily and in a healthy way or in, even in an unhealthy way. A lot of them just stuffed it down. And so when, when our families stuff down their emotions and we don't get to learn what they look and feel like, then as adults, we're told, hey, let yourself feel this. And we're like, uh, we draw a blank, right? We're like, I don't know. I, I come up, I'm, I have nothing, right? So allow yourself the time to kind of get to know it good, bad, and different. And then then we can move into the feeling part. Okay? Okay. Let's move on to question seven. And it asks, Katie, what is your take on gifted kid burnout? It's talked about uh, pretty often on social media. What do children experience when they don't get supported enough to reach their potential? Or what does it do to them to be told that they have potential, but that they don't fully use it? Now, gifted kid burnout, from my understanding, and you correct me if I'm wrong, it's essentially when um, we're told we have all this potential, maybe from a really young age. Like I remember even when I was younger, I had to try out for like this gifted kid program. Spoilers, didn't, didn't meet criteria, but I had to try out for it because I was you know, high in my class, my regular class, but I didn't, so I was like in this middle space between the gifted program and the regular. Um, but gifted kid burnout is when we're told we have all this potential and then like the the pressure we can feel or the perfectionism that can sneak in, we can feel like we have to just, we have to meet that potential, right? And that can start from a very young age. Like I think I took that test when I was like in fourth grade, like sweet Jesus, thank God I didn't qualify could have fucked me up. Um, But that pressure to be good and to do everything perfectly can be overwhelming because it starts from a young age. And what, when does it stop? It essentially never stops. I know people like, oh, but you finished school. Well, then what you go into a career path and then what you think you got to rise to the top, right? And so we have what's called gifted kid burnout. Like, oh, you got so much potential. Now, the question here is, um, what do children experience when they don't get enough support, right? They can't reach that potential, right? Or there's no, let's say you grew up in a town that didn't have a gifted program. So you were just like bored all the time and didn't, you know, didn't get to, you know, I don't know, cruise your way through. It can affect a lot of different things. And obviously everybody's going to be different, but the pressure can build and we can, um, because we're kids and we're impulsive and we're also trying to figure out who we are, it can go in many different ways where number one, we can revolt and be like, fuck this. I don't want to be part of this. I don't want to be a gifted kid anymore. Um, or if there's no even gifted program, we can be so bored in school that we like don't even apply ourselves anymore. It's just not interesting and our grades drop. And then they're like, you, you had such potential, right? We hear that such potential. And so we can revolt or we can out of boredom, just not do well. 
And I believe that this erodes at our self-esteem and our self-worth because a lot of what we were told we could be was wrapped up in our ability to do well in school. And spoilers, people who are intelligent and great members of society might not have done well in school. School is definitely for a certain type of brain to person, and we need to have variations available in different paths for, you know, neurodiverse individuals. But without getting into that too much, that's a whole tangent. This, um, I think children can experience things like depression, anxiety, perfectionism, and that that pressure to do well and be perfect is not healthy for kids of any age. It's not even healthy for adults. I mean, speak of kids and stuff, but it's not healthy for anybody to feel like, got to do better. Everything has to be perfect. We have, it's it's too much. It's too much. And sure, we can have these little blips of pressure when, like, oh, I have a presentation I have to do, or, oh, I need to show up for this person, or like I give talks at schools and um, different corporations a lot, and I want to show up for them. I want to do well, right? That's okay for me to have a little pressure, a little stress for that little bit of time, but it needs to go away. I can't sustain always thinking and feeling like I need to be perfect. I need to perform. I need to meet my potential. Like that's overwhelming for us. And so I think overall it erodes at our self-esteem and our our self-worth and our feelings about who we are. And it can lead to things like depression, anxiety, um, even self-injurious behavior I've seen in a lot of my patients, eating disorders, all sorts, runs the gamut of mental illnesses. Um, And so we need to stop doing that to children. Yes, we can support them and say, hey, if you're bored in school and you find it to be really easy, why don't we try out for this other plan and see if we can get you in there so then you you get to learn about even cooler things. Like I remember it was sold to me as... And we get to learn more about space or something. And I was like, ooh, that would be cool, right? And we need to talk about things in that way, something that could be interesting for you or fun for you. And if the kid's like, no, I don't want to, we need to, we can push a little, but we also need to respect within reason, you know, our child's ability to handle all the stress and pressures of today. Because I feel fortunate that I grew up when I did before. I mean, colleges were competitive enough when I applied, but I can't imagine now. So just keeping that in mind, I think it's really hard for kids to be told that they have potential or they're not meeting their potential. I think we can support our children and encourage them to to learn new things by making it fun and interesting and being curious about our child's process and experience at school without just harping on grades and them meeting their potential and acting like their whole life depends on every test. Kids don't need that kind of stress. It's it's too much. We need to allow children to be children at least for a little while. Okay. And those are just my opinions. Let's move on to question number eight. It says, hi, Katie. I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well. My question is around what feels like extreme intense maternal transference with my therapist. I find it very difficult and extremely humiliating. Although I've been able to let her know and she has been excellent about it. That's great. I've been seeing her for two years now and the feelings have not lessened. In fact, they've increased once I started to see her in person as COVID restrictions lessened. I'm at a point where it just seems easier to quit therapy. Nope. Mm -mm -mm. We'll get into that. Then to continue as I'm constantly having to try to talk myself out of the feelings so she doesn't think I'm a creep and let me go as a client. It's fucking exhausting. Do you have any thoughts on why this is or why this feels so intense? What would likely have caused me to have such strong or painful transference? Like what exactly in my childhood would have led to this? Also, what has to happen for me to be able to finally resolve this? Everything I would come across on the good old Google machine says that I need to feel the feelings and grieve what I didn't get as a child, but I don't know how to let myself grieve or feel it. What exactly would that look like? Actually crying in a session? (laughs) Any insight on this would be greatly appreciated. Many thanks. Of course. Now, the, the maternal transference that you're feeling must, this is my best guess. It must have meant that if, because if you haven't thought of something, I'm going to assume, and maybe not, but I'm going to say it because I don't want to make any assumptions, usually abuse in some way. So sexual, physical abuse, I would assume I'm going to rule those out because I, I would, my guess would be that you'd be like, oh, it's coming from that. But if not, that could be a cause. But more likely is what we would call childhood emotional neglect, meaning that your mother or your father, because your therapist is a woman, and now I would assume that's why the maternal transference. So maybe it's your mom or your grandma or whoever was taking care of you a lot, maybe an aunt, wasn't there for you emotionally. Or maybe your whole family just couldn't quite 
rise to meet you where you're at or said things like you're too sensitive or why are you such a drama queen or you you're so needy or why are you always overreacting right we get those kinds of messages as a kid and then we shut it down and we have to like snuff out that part of ourselves and we always think i'm too much i'm too much no one's ever going to want to be around me i'm just so such a burden for people then we get into therapy and a therapist says like feel your feelings it's okay you're not too much i've got this we can handle this this is amazing look at the work you're doing and they offer that compassion that love that support that understanding that emotional intelligence that we've so desperately needed since day one and so we're like therapist, please be my mom because my mom couldn't do this and I really need this. And without realizing it, we try to put our therapist into that that hole that was left by our mother. And that would be my guess as to what is happening here. I don't know for sure if any of that resonated with you, you know, take it and run with it and talk with your therapist about it. You're not a creep, but we need to tell our therapist this is coming up because what I think you really need to do is some inner child work. Now, I have an inner child workshop that I led, I don't know, was it in September? So a few months ago. And you could you can order it. Like it's on my website. And yes, it's not live. Like it was recorded live. But the videos are recorded and you can still participate and get the worksheets and all that stuff and do that work. Also in my Amazon store, if you go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton, I have some books in there that you could get if you want to do your work that way. Um, But inner child work is where I think this is going to have to go. And that's why the good old Google machine is saying like to let yourself feel and grieve it. It's really younger you needs to hear things from older you now that it's going to be okay and that they're not too much and that they're not too sensitive or not overreacting and that having needs is okay. Taking up space is okay. They're going to need to hear that. And there are a lot of different tools and techniques and things that we can do, like writing letters back and forth from adult us to younger us. Um, I have videos about inner child work too, if you want to watch those. There's a lot of ways for you to get some information on that for free because um, I know everybody's budgets are a little tight these days. Um, but that's what I think is happening. And that's why it feels so intense because you're finally getting a need met that you've had maybe your entire life. So be compassionate and kind with yourself. You don't need to quit therapy. We actually just need to let our therapist know about this and talk about it and say, hey, I asked this therapist on YouTube and she was talking about inner child work. Do you think that could help? Because it's so uncomfortable. You can just say it's uncomfortable. It is. It's awkward. We don't like it, but it's happening. Why is it happening? What can we do to make it better? We need to be curious, not judgmental about our process because this tells us something else. It's not actually about your therapist. That's a funny thing. As a therapist, and I'm assuming yours is good at her job, she should know that too. It has nothing to do with us. It's all about you and your past relationships. And we, in some way, represent one that you wished you could have had. And so we're trying to take us and put us in that void. And so we need to figure out how to fill that void on your own, how to helpfully allow you to heal. And that's what it will look like. It's getting in touch with that inner child of you. But I have videos about it. I've got a workshop. There's books. Whatever is available to you, I would encourage you to really dig into that and talk with your therapist about it as you walk through it. Okay? Okay. Final question. Question number nine says, Katie, how do I know the difference between a therapist being too harsh or just doing her job? Great question. We should feel pushed. So... I was just giving a talk about this in Pennsylvania uh, last month where I explained this and hopefully this helps. We should feel challenged by our therapist, meaning the things that they're asking us to do. Like I'll give examples of homework my own therapist has given me. Like back in high school, she was like, I want you to turn off your phone and not be available for like half a day. What? As a people pleaser and someone who needs to be needed, that was terrifying. It was really hard for me. Couldn't do it for the first couple of weeks. Started off, then we moved it back from like half a day to like an hour to two hour. You know, we went like half a day to two hours to one hour to 30 minutes. And then we worked our way back up to a half day. Took me quite a few months to get through it. That was hard. But it wasn't too harsh. She was calling me out. She was like, what's really going to happen? What would happen if you weren't available? What if you did a day, had a day where you just did everything you wanted? And I was like, I don't even know what I want. What? Right? It was a challenge. It was pushing me. She was calling me out. But never did I feel like 
it was going too fast. I was being re-traumatized or traumatized in general. It didn't make me feel worse about who I was or my progress in therapy. And I didn't leave, I didn't leave the sessions like feeling really shitty about who I was. I did leave the sessions being like, oh my God, I didn't even know. I I didn't realize I did this all the time, right? I didn't know this about myself. I was learning. I was growing. It was challenging, but I was learning and growing. If you ever feel like your therapist is putting you down, minimizing your experience, saying things like, oh, it's just depression. I have patients who have it way worse. Bad therapist. If they, um, like the person I talked about at the beginning saying like, felt like her therapist was like manufacturing her experience. Those aren't good signs. That's not good. So a therapist being too harsh would, uh, be putting us down, leaving us feeling like worse off than when we came into therapy, minimizing our experience, or I don't know, even using words that are kind of like demeaning or downplaying, or even like traumatizing, like moving too fast. Like even if we said like, hey, I can't do this. And they're like, no, I think you really need to challenge yourself, like doing exposures before we're ready or whatever. And we have more panic attacks and everything's getting way worse without any tools right? Because sometimes things do get worse before they get better, but we need to have tools to help us manage. If that's happening, that's too harsh. That's too much. That's too fast. We should never leave therapy feeling worse about ourselves. I know we can feel worse, meaning I like it stirred up a lot of my grief or it stirred up a lot of my old traumas or past experiences and I can start to feel overwhelmed, but I don't feel bad about who I am. I don't feel attacked by my therapist. I feel more like they've... Uh, taken a flashlight and shown it in on the dark parts. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, I thought I hid that away. I didn't think anybody could see that, right? And I feel more vulnerable than maybe I normally would. That's good therapy, but it shouldn't feel like completely exposed and made fun of or talked down to. They should be there with you. We are equals with our therapists. They're our partner in crime. They're in the bunker with us, helping us find our way out. That's how it should feel. Does that make sense? I hope so. Because we don't want, no one should have a therapist that, you know, leaves them feeling worse about who they are and what they're about. We should feel heard, understood, and supported. Okay? Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Please share this podcast with someone. Um, Share it on your social media. Let people know it exists. That really, really helps. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week. And I will see you next time. Bye.